You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Epidemic Sound, the company reimagining music licensing for the digital age. Epidemic's library contains tens of thousands of tracks that you can license a la carte or on a subscription basis. Unlike other music licensing companies, Epidemic Sound owns its entire catalog and makes tracks available via one straightforward license to cover all your needs, worldwide and in perpetuity. No more headaches around usage reporting, performance royalties, or murky rights ownership. It's better for the artists and better for you, the creator. So whatever your music needs, Epidemic Sound has got you covered. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Kelly Perdue, co-founder and managing general partner of Moonshots Capital. Kelly, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, James. Yeah, glad we get to do this. I thought we'd start and travel back in time a bit. Uh, You attended the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and then served two years as a first lieutenant in military intelligence. What was your military service experience like? So my military service experience was pretty fantastic. I went to officer basic course at Fort Huachuca in Arizona and volunteered to attend ranger training, um, which was an unusual thing for typically for military intelligence officers to do. So I got a slot and I spent 67 days going through the three phases of ranger school. And I thought that life would probably not get any worse than that at any point in time. So you do uh, a desert phase, a jungle phase and a mountain phase. And it absolutely tests your physical, but I think more importantly, similarly to uh, how startups impact you, your mental endurance and your ability to handle it and hack it and get through it. Yeah, that's huge. And then what were your two years like in military intelligence? So I was stationed at Fort Ord in Monterey, California, and I think it was a little, a little over three years. And when you graduate from West Point, you come out as a second lieutenant, you're commissioned as a second lieutenant, and then I got promoted to first lieutenant during my time. And during that active duty time frame, I was the assistant S2 for a brigade, and we were what's called an RDF unit, which is a rapid deployable force, meaning, and if, you get, if anybody listening can remember beepers, we had beepers so that about a third of the unit was able to be recalled in about two hours. You had to be standing tall and looking good with everything packed so that you could have wheels up in 18 hours uh, to go to wherever you know our commander decided we needed to go. So I spent about a third of the time in that unit. Then I moved to be an XO at an MI battalion company. I was the XO for a company, and then I was a platoon leader for a counterintelligence platoon. So got my time in leading troops, understanding a little bit more about how the Army worked. Uh, and then when my time in commitment ended, I uh, was able to get accepted to and attend UCLA for both the law and the business program. That's right. So you went back to school and you do the MBA or the JD MBA. Yep. Uh, what prompted you to do that? So my initial inclination, you know, being straight out of college, only serving in the military and having no direct business experience in any roles uh, other than the great leadership experiences that I got in the military, I thought, you know, I could be a, what I consider to be a, you know, a great corporate attorney and understand kind of mergers and acquisitions, different types of transactional law. And in order to do that, I thought as after I did all my informational interviews with attorneys that they wish they had more business background or business experience, I thought, well, let me overlay the MBA with that program so that it gives me a better base around which to operate as an attorney. And, uh, during that program, I disabused myself of wanting to be an attorney and uh, really enjoyed and became excited about the business side of it um, and began exploring early stage technology and early, early technology startups. The entrepreneurial bug bit me about, uh, I guess it was halfway through the third year of the four-year program. I started working with my first startup called ImageTel, which was, sounds silly now to say it, but it was a video conferencing capability, um, one of the first of its kind. There were a few publicly traded companies called PictureTel and VTel um, that were not doing very well. And ImageTel, we thought, was a great solution for that. So invested a lot of time and money and got a whole bunch of friends and family money invested in that business. Wow. How did that come about? How did you meet the team? What prompted you to jump in? My brother actually was at a company in Louisville, Kentucky, and he got involved in the deal and went and looked at it and became excited about the company and actually went in as kind of the head of engineering and realized and understood that the the business side of the house needed some more work. He understood and realized that they were going to need to raise money to make that happen. He had no experience at that. I actually had no experience at that, <laughs> but um, thought, thought I did or thought I, thought I knew how to do that. So I went after it. We ended up raising about, I think, three quarters of a million dollars 
probably half of that was from my friends and family that I'd met either through the business program or, you know, having operated in LA for a couple of years. And I went for another two years with ImageTel, not taking pay, accruing expenses, traveling back and forth to the company, which was based in Louisville, Kentucky, and got up to about, I don't know, 80, I think I want to say it was $83,000 in credit card debt on top of the debt that I was accruing uh, through the through the JD MBA program. Wow. And um, when I went to the Ralph's on Barrington and Olympic, um, which is still there, and had my you know, my cart filled with ramen and tuna fish, uh, got up to the cash register and she'd let me know that my credit card was declined. So that's when I uh, had to make some tough decisions, especially as it related to, you know, letting down what I consider to be letting down the friends and family who put money into the company. But, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a hierarchy for a reason and food and shelter have to take care of first. I decided at that point in time, I had done one summer during the JD MBA program with Deloitte Consulting. They made me an offer, but I decided to go the entrepreneurial route. So I called them back up and said, if you double that signing bonus, I'd be happy to come to work for you. And they did. Um, so I went to work for the man in podcast world. You can't see my air quotations, but um, I went to work for the man at Deloitte Consulting, took the signing bonus, paid off a bunch of the debt, but then uh, spent two, the next two years digging myself out of debt. So what would you say was the hardest part of being a first-time founder during your experience at ImageTel? So the advice I give for any founders is you absolutely have to have the passion, the grit, and the determination to do the impossible. And that means, you know, in those famous words, never give up. However, you should surround yourself with a, the same way that you have a board of directors or a board of formal board of advisors for the company. You should have a personal board of advisors whose only real incentive is your good thinking about you personally, because you can absolutely, for all the reasons that you can read about in a lot of different places, go way too far under the auspices of never giving up, especially when you take money from friends and family, it makes you go a little bit farther. And I would say that if you have you know, a personal board of advisors that have your best interest at heart, they can be your sounding board for thinking about when is enough enough? And when am I not even serving the people that I took the money from? I should actually go do something else so that I could get them their money back in a different endeavor in the future may be the prudent thing to do. So, you know, having that personal board of advisors, I think, is a critical element to ensuring that you don't literally or figuratively kill yourself in the process of trying to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's huge. And sometimes the incentives that the board has, and especially if you're raising capital, that the venture investors have to see an outsized return on their capital is extreme. And this is a bit of an aside, but I'm curious to get your take on, do you think that sometimes that creates a misalignment of incentives and in pushes people to do things that are less than rational for themselves and sometimes even for the business. And I guess the sure. poster child example of this right now is Elizabeth Holmes. You know, certainly a lot of the things that she did are horribly wrong, mm -hmm. but was she pushed to those limits as a result of the pressure and this mythology of, well, to be a successful entrepreneur, you know, you cut corners and, you know, you make it happen. And if, and if it had gone right, she would have been a hero, right? But the fact that it went wrong, right. you know, she catches a lot of heat for it. What, what's your take on that? So I think there are a lot of major points that you just brought up with that discussion. I think the, the first one is based on math. If you look at funds and venture funds, the math is required for them to do what they're in business to do and look at their LP agreements. You know, if, if, you're, if your fund is not a micro fund, i.e. if you're at 150, 200, 300, 300 million you know, and on up, and there are a lot bigger ones than that, then your incentives and what you're supposed to be doing is to create, by when I say outsized returns, I, I mean, you have to create billion dollar companies. And one of the things that I talk to founders about when we're, when we're investing via our fund, Moonshots Capital, which is a micro fund, it's under a hundred million, is when you take the check from the tier one VC, um, because you're playing long ball and it's got, it's going to be big. If you just look at the math you know, a $200 million exit is not interesting, which is staggering to say that, right? Because... Doesn't return the fund. The return, you know, they all, you know, the partners at large funds only have so much time, and they'll say this, they only have so much time that they can spend helping ensure that a company is successful, so they can only do so many at once. Eight to 12, you know, at the, at the top end of that, it starts to get really hard to be a contributing board member. If you get to be larger, you know, more portfolio companies that you sit on the board of than that. And if you have a billion dollar fund and you divide that by the number of partners and how much capital can be deployed, you have to invest a lot of money in each deal. You have to have a significant ownership in each deal. 
And those deals have to get, some of them have to get to a billion dollars, which does create what you could be construed as contradictory tensions around what would be successful for an entrepreneur, a first-time entrepreneur who's got a company that's worth 30, 40, 50 million dollars going into a series A or B, like depending on what the growth trajectory is. And at $200 million and one more set of dilution, they're still own 20 to 30% of the company. It's a 40 to $60 million payday to sell that company for the entrepreneur and for the angels that got involved and for the early stage, you know, seed, seed investors. But for the, you know, the primary large check VC that came in that owns 20, 20, 20 to 30% of the company and put 10 in and has another 50 to 200 the stack behind it, they want you to go to a billion dollars. They want you to own the marketplace, which is understandable. And in some instances, it's a smart decision, but it should be a decision that's made with eyes wide open for that entrepreneur to make that decision on what they want to do. They are necessarily foregoing, at least foregoing with an easy route, because you can still force it depending on the leverage that you have as the entrepreneur. But for everybody to have smiley faces around the table, you're going to have to thread the needle and get to that unicorn status for that to be a successful outcome. So that's the first piece, the yeah. math. Are there any other elements at play here? <clears throat> well, I think that in any job, in any role, entrepreneur or not, there are always questions of integrity that come up. And there are always what you could consider to be pressures to sail, bluster, fudge. And I think that different people get closer to that bright line than others. Uh, some people don't even recognize there being a line there. And so, you know, one of the leadership characteristics that we look for when we're investing out of the Moonshots Capital Fund is integrity and understanding, you know, I want, I want to understand and know the bad news first. I want you to be, you know, I can't help you if you're not being straightforward with me or honest with me in terms of me investing and being a board member. So I wouldn't support or, you know, provide, you know, a significant amount of help to somebody who showed that they couldn't have integrity in the process. Yeah, that's huge. So I want to pick back up in your story, and we're at Deloitte, and hear the rest of your journey and how we get to, uh, to Moonshots Capital. So tell us about your time there in the consulting world and what happened next. Yeah, so Deloitte Consulting is a fantastic place to work. It's chock full of really bright people. Um, they have very exciting and interesting projects to work on and clients to work for, especially in the strategy practice where I operated. Shorter term deals, you know, six to eight to 16 to 20 week projects. So you get a lot of you know, you change teams frequently, you change clients frequently, and you work on different things. And you get to travel, and they pay you pretty well. However, I wouldn't say that, and from an entrepreneur's view, like from, from my view and what I was doing, I got my, you know, my hole, my, the hole that I dug myself into financially, I got filled within 24 months. I'd made it to senior consultant and was transitioning to manager, I believe. I got to check the specifics on that. I can't remember. But as soon as I got in the, back in the block financially... I found an opportunity that I wanted to go join and gave my notice at Deloitte and said, thank you. It's been fantastic. Really appreciate it. And the managing partner wanted to talk to me as part of the op processing. Exit interview. Yeah, the, the exit interview process. And I was a little bewildered. I'm like this little, you know, peon in the size of the Deloitte consulting, but wanted to meet. And she said something very interesting to me that I, that I still carry. She goes like, you did great work while you were here, Kelly. We really appreciate it. You know, hopefully you'll go out and do stuff and you can bring us in as a client or you maybe come back or the door's always open, but you need to make sure this is the right time for you to do this because you only get so many different times in your career path where you're able to build skills. And I was a little perplexed, like, what do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, your ability to work Excel, your ability to build PowerPoint, your ability to do competitive research and analytics, your ability to design and tell a story and work with really, you know, tools that you can take with you and make you successful in the future. And I thought that was very interesting, very fascinating. And I've re-echoed that sentiment to different young entrepreneurs or people who are in different roles that are antsy or feisty or want to go out and change the world at super young age, basically with no real wisdom mm -hmm. around which to build any common sense decision making or any other components. So I'm, you know, the, the Moonshots Capital Fund thesis is to invest in extraordinary leadership. And, you know, one of the only places that we see that leadership's trained per se is in the military. So we lean heavily when there's military veterans on founding teams where they've gotten real world experience leading people. We also are attracted to and like kind of the battle-scarred entrepreneur, right? If you've been through the process two or three times, you've, you know, you've built a set of tools 
that'll enable you to be more successful every time you go after it and go to it. But I, I, you know, I often say to people who are in pretty interesting roles where they're learning a lot and developing skills that don't cut that off too early. And I think one of the best times to try to build a company is when you're have somebody else kind of paying for your Maslow's lower hierarchy of things <laughs> so that you can get into it, understand it, test it, and then make the jump once you have some good data telling you that there's something there. Big time. I mentor uh, undergraduate students at USC and I also advise a number of kind of early stage entrepreneurs and oftentimes you meet these really passionate excited young founders or aspiring entrepreneurs and they you know there's this mythos you know that's perpetrated about entrepreneurship as you know it's people who drop out of college or um, you know are just out of school launch a big company like the Mark Zuckerberg type and they're immensely successful and I tell them well actually if you look at the data most entrepreneurs that have successful exits are in their late 30s, 40s, 50s because they've done it before, they have some sort of industry experience, they've built up a network, which is critical, not just the skills, but the people around you that you can call on to help you when you run into those challenges. So yeah. it's something that, yeah, you, you definitely, if you have a great idea, that's awesome, go after it, but find a way to develop those skills, get some other experience around you before you jump right in and try and launch your first venture. I think of uh, the entrepreneurs that we back, um, the entrepreneurs that I've met, and I think of them kind of cut from two cloths. One is I'm in industry. I see a big problem. I understand all the players and the constituents that are associated with it, and I know how to solve that problem, meaning I know exactly what needs to be done and be able to do that. That takes a significant amount of experience to get to that point with a domain knowledge like you were saying in an industry or sector. They may or may not have what I kind of described the second entrepreneur kind of cloth. They're an operator, right? They know how to build companies. They know how to make, you know, operationally set it up and structure it so that all the balls go through the hoop in the right order so that successful and good things can occur. In my 10 companies that I've been a part of founding in or on the senior team for, I'm much more the latter. I'm not the guy in industry who's like, Eureka, I can see the future. This is what's happening. I'm the guy that's like, okay, that's, that's an incredibly compelling vision. It's probably not where we're going to end up, but we can be close to it. And in order to do that, here are all the resources we need. Here's a path. Here's a plan. Here's how we're going to set up the operating tempo. Here's how we're going to raise the money. This is what we need to be delivering. These are the types of people we need that, and where I can go and tap a network or reset of resources because I've been, I came up through kind of finance and biz dev. Those are my kind of horizontal capability components, but the company building aspect, I think the entrepreneur that's going to be able to raise one, two, three, five rounds of financing, that company building entrepreneur is the second, the second type. Yeah. And you need both of those skill sets are complementary because it's a very different person that you know, takes a business from zero to one, as opposed to one to 10, 10 to hundred and beyond. For 90%, 99% of the time, mm -hmm. I agree with that. Every now and then you find a unicorn. Absolutely. <laughs> Even though they're super common now. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Very cool. Um, I was also you know, doing some research and it, was, it, it stuck out to me that you were an early advisor to both Pandora and LinkedIn. How'd you get connected with those companies? So in the instance of Pandora, Pandora was originally called Savage Beast. And John Kraft, who's a local entrepreneur, he's based here in L.A., um, was the founding CEO, and Tim was the head of product, Tim Westergen, who most people think of and know and have seen primarily branded around Pandora. He stayed there the entire, you know, for a long, long time. It was, a, you know, a great example of what I see and all the entrepreneurs I know that, you know, have the eight-year, 10-year overnight successes. Everybody sees a Slack, everybody sees a LinkedIn, and like, wow, you know, I should have invested in that three or four years ago, and it's like, ah, let's try 12 years ago, right? And... John carried a lot of the weight on his shoulders in terms of personally signing for the lease in Oakland on the building, managing through all the founder issues that ensue in almost any company that has its ups and downs as you, as you move through it. And he, he was a good friend before it happened, and he asked me to you know, be a formal advisor as part of that process. So that was from a personal relationship. Uh, in terms of advising on LinkedIn, I had known about The Apprentice that I was in the finale. So the way The, the, way the Apprentice used to work... They'd film your, you know, film for six or eight weeks, and it was day, you know, back to back, day after day. You do a three-day task, boardroom at night. Somebody'd get fired. The next morning, you get a new task. It doesn't happen every Thursday like everybody saw on TV, right? That's not how that's not how they filmed it. So, as you saw people getting rings around their eyes and becoming a bit bedraggled, it was because it was consistent for six to eight weeks. And after filming it, the finale's live, the second half of the finale. So. 
we're going through. I'm making it through. I'm kicking butt and taking names. I'm so, Rube, I just have to stop you right there yeah, because, yeah. first of all, how did we... You're a reality TV star at this point, right? How did you get on season two of The Apprentice? How'd that happen? Random. So, you know, like a lot of things. Um, there are a bunch of different ways to get on the show. You can mail in your video of why you want to be on the show, you know, with filling out the application. I think that's where they got to the million applications. Mm-hmm. You can know a casting agent. But I hadn't, even though I'd lived in L.A., I'd never been involved or around Hollywood in any shape or form, so I didn't know that. They did casting calls, if everybody will remember, like in different cities where it was like a let's make a deal line around the block. And they'd actually have, you know, Trump would be at some, his son would be at some, whatever. And then the way that I didn't know about was Burnett, who was the producer for the show, reached out to all the local business schools here in L.A. and just asked to do closed casting calls. So we, as an alumni, I got a, you know, from Anderson, I got an email that said, oh, you know, Burnett's production casting, blah, blah, will be coming to interview for second season of The Apprentice. And had you heard of the show? I mean, it's relatively I, new. I heard of it. It was, so. it was okay. the first season was like a few episodes into it and it got a big splash. Sure. And he was, you know, with the Cobra firing, you're fired. Like that, <laughs> yeah. that was, that was out and about. So I had lived, I was living in San Diego for that year at the time. And I was like, I could rearrange my schedule and be up in LA for that. Nah, forget it deleted it and my next youngest brother also went to Anderson but lived in Florida and when he got the email he forwarded it to me and said you have to go do this 100% has to have to go this is you yeah so I ended up I, I went to the casting call I walked in late they were in the auditorium style room where they had given everybody this thing to fill in like what's your you know most embarrassing story da 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 so people were sitting in chairs like they were taking an exam you know every other chair right filling in forms I walked up to the front got a thing and just stood up there with the casting people filling it out asking questions saying hey do you have this electronically I haven't written more than a sentence in like 10 years like my hand hurts and then I was pretty much a smart ass when they broke us out into you know 10 people you know with one casting you know made a bunch of comments said a bunch of stuff got the tug on the shoulder said hey we want to have you come in for a callback and went from there the the process was pretty rigorous including IQ test personality test and a whole bunch of other stuff so he clearly paints a mosaic of the 18 characters where I would say, you know, three or four or five of us are legitimate contenders and the rest are psycho demo fill for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Because it was just a bunch of business school people figuring out how to solve a task. It probably would not be that entertaining. <laughs> and it would probably be on PBS. Ended up knowing that I made the finale, but then the finale's live. He actually hires or fire you. This is so we finished it in the end of July. It, it started airing in September and it doesn't finish until December. So I know in July that I'm in the finale and I'm gonna be the winner or fired on a pretty big plat- national platform. And it ended up having 30 million people watch the finale. So wow. basically half a Super Bowl. And the show started, I'd done some stuff, you know, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Pretty significant NDA with Burnett, as you might imagine. So I'd whiteboarded myself in a room, you know, all, all four walls of, hey, do I want to start a clothing line? Hey, do I want to, like, anything you could think of, you know, marking them off the list and not doing them. And writing a book is one of them, which, which I did. It's called Take Command. I you know, setting up a speaker, speaking opportunities. And I did that, did about 60 uh, in the year after. And then I went back to what I loved, which is helping entrepreneurs succeed and thinking about early stage technology startups. And I reached out, you know, I, I did a few other things. I bought some URLs of the other contestants. They didn't buy their own URL name. So the game didn't end when the game actually ended. Smart. <laughs> um, so I was getting, I don't know, half a million, a million visitors, which was massive at the time, once the show aired, right? Because they told our names finally. And everybody, including some of my family members, were like, what? So it was pretty exciting. And I was like, you know, I can direct a lot of this traffic to brands or entities that I think are relevant or important and create some form of an affiliate model or Influencer whatever it might marketing be. marketing before Influencer the Influencer marketing in 2005, wow. right? December of 2004. So I contacted LinkedIn because I had been an early adopter and using it. And I, you know, got a hold of the head of BizDev through, link, through the LinkedIn platform. That's when you had to cut and paste the URL and tell people why they needed to do this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't automatically set up. And a gentleman named Matt Kohler, who then went on to be the VP of BizDev at the Facebook, when it was still called the Facebook, and then went to be one of the youngest partners at Benchmark, was a guy that I negotiated with for advisory shares to include LinkedIn in my book, chapter in my book, included all my speaking engagements and put it above the fold of my website to drive traffic. And for the, you know, the opportunity to be an advisor, they also said that they would require the use of my likeness when I won. And I said, hold on, 
you know, per my agreement, nobody won anything. Who knows if I won? I could get fired next week. You know, it's up to you. And he goes, well, when you're fired or win, we want to be able to use your name and likeness for the face of LinkedIn. So for about, a, and you, I don't know if you remember they did that at the beginning, but they had, you know, Richard Kiyosaki, all, all sorts of different people as the face of LinkedIn and showed their example profiles. So, you know, after I won the show, I became the face of LinkedIn for about a month. Amazing. So take me to the finale. Mm. You're in this final challenge. Yeah. And you have this opportunity to work with Donald Trump for a year, what happens? So he asks which opportunity I would like to work on. The two that I get to choose from on the Upper West Side, there's about, I think, six or seven buildings there called Trump Place, right along the Hudson River. And then there's a brand new building going up in Las Vegas called the Trump uh, Resort and Spa. So not a casino, but a resort and spa. And I said, you know, having known him, you know, during the board sessions and in the brief interactions that we had during the show, that I would much prefer to sit at the feet of the master in New York City and learn from him for the year of apprenticing rather than be off in Las Vegas where I'd see him maybe once or twice. So ostensibly, I was to work on the Upper West Side project. And I think that I, what by the time I showed up three weeks later, Trump maybe owned less than a point of the building still had already been you know, acquired by other real estate owners. But I still shot two commercials and a hard hat on top and helped pr- you know, promote the next series of The Apprentice. But I worked in Trump's offices, saw him on a weekly basis, um, interacted with him frequently, traveled with him on the jet you know, a few times, and probably spent a third of my time working on real estate items with his right-hand George, who was on the show for a while. And I haven't seen or heard from him in a long time, but worked with him on every... And I didn't know anything about real estate. So I was in a full-on, you know, drinking from the fire hose situation, but did things like do speaking engagements. I hosted a show on the military channel called... Um, Oh, I can't remember the name of the show. It was like dirty jobs for military vehicles, weapons, and equipment. We went to different places around the U.S. It was like nine episodes, but I got a little... I got to see what a, a non-significantly financed <laughs> production looked like. So we stayed in a lot of Motel 6s, but really, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty fun, fun to do that. And then, you know, spent my full year there working with him, Don Jr., Ivanka, phenomenal individuals. And then when it ended, they wanted me to stay and work. There's no real equity. Um, they're two heirs apparent, obviously hardworking, great people in, in the building. And I was like, no, I'm an entrepreneur. I need to go do my own thing. Yeah. But left, you know, I, I can say I was never fired by Donald Trump, having worked there for it's over a, a year. accomplishment. <laughs> Which is pretty good. Yeah. Um, but he was fantastic to me. Loyalty is by far what he considers to be the most important trait in anybody that he works with. But had a, had a, had a phenomenal year in New York City. Learned a massive amount about media and was frequently asked what I thought about when he said he was going to run and when he started running. I was like, you guys you better watch out. When was he thinking about that? No, no. Oh, more recently you're I, saying. Yeah, I, 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 yep. think, I think that if you look historically, he's always hinted about it and talked about it. And it certainly fits within what his ego thinks is probable or likely or optimal. You know, as he started, you know, to seriously become a contender, I got a lot of questions about him. I'm like, you guys have, you don't have any understanding of how well he understands how to use the media. What do you think most people fail to understand about Donald Trump? So when I watched him operate for that year, he would frequently have multiple deals simultaneously being negotiated in the room, like unrelated deals. He would just be right, you know, negotiating them with about six to 10 people waiting outside to see him, three assistants, a Domino's pizza commercial waiting to film in one conference room and two floors down an apprentice episode waiting to film a boardroom session from like 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. And he showed zero signs of slowing and operated, you know, at that pace just nonstop all the time. And my thought process was, like, I don't understand why he would change that operating procedure. Obviously, not having the same level or depth of understanding or knowledge in a category or sector like he does with real estate where he could do that that fast and I don't want to say from the hip because he had a significant amount of experience and is extremely intelligent, but clearly kind of world affairs and all of the variances that occur with what happens that has to happen to run the United States government. I don't think he slows, slows down his initial decision-making or following his gut. I think that he gets feedback after those meetings occur, and that's why you see some what considered to be flip-flop or change of decision-making because he's intelligent taking in information after the meeting that allows him to make a better, better decision. You know, a lot of and people have to do that in that role. Some of them do it with a little, uh, I guess, a little, a little less openly or publicly. So I think that the open element isn't something that no one's ever seen before. Obviously shocking, obviously hard to control. Air quotes again, control. 
um, for his staff and for the people on his staff. So it makes that those jobs probably a lot more difficult. Yeah. Any particular stories or moments stand out at you from the year you were living in New York working with Trump? Well, I mean, I think, you know, most of the detractors, you know, say, you know, he's clearly got some personality components that are pretty obvious to everyone, but I watched him stop for, you know, and make, you know, a hospital visit to a child for one of the, you know, charities that was involved with something and asked him to do something where required, he required, you know, no media, nobody know about it. And he, he would just go do that. But the level of requests that he had for money, time, his name were simply staggering. This was then, you know, this was a long time ago. And I'm, I'm talking, you know, hundreds of day, hundreds a day of requests for things. So his ability, I think, to take, you know, there are a lot of real estate billionaires, lots, right? Like many. And none of them would have been able to create the same type of marketing power that his name brings um, worldwide. And I think that's pretty, pretty phenomenal. Any predictions? We can stay out of the politics of it all, but any predictions heading into 2020? Super hard, super hard to beat them right now. I mean, if nothing else, just the phenomenal economy that's going on. It's just hard to beat anybody in a killer economy. Yeah. Notwithstanding the prowess with media and a whole bunch of other stuff. But. Yeah, sure. So you take those lessons, and as you, you hinted at earlier, you publish your first book, Take Command, 10 Leadership Principles I Learned in the Military and Put to Work for Donald Trump in 2005. What inspired you to write the book? Is it just the experience coming off of The Apprentice? So, I mean, the book perfectly dovetails with the thesis for the fun, actually. As I went through the media circuit, or circus, however you want to describe it, after the win, I got sincere questions about, do you think your military background helped you win the show and perform? for? And I'm like, do you not understand what the military does for people? That was my, it became incredulity of like, you don't, you, people just don't get it. People don't understand. So I felt like the book help to answer the questions of like, what is it that you get from the military that it's really difficult to get in any one other location or place? And those leadership principles, one, I'm also pretty pragmatic. I mean, I want a reality show. I didn't build a billion dollar business, right? So I'm like, there are a whole bunch of military veterans who have built billion dollar businesses. So let me go interview them as part of the book. So I, you know, spent time with Ross Perot, Roger Staubach, Bill Coleman's the B of BEA Systems. All of these people phenomenally successful business people who came out of being, you know, in the military. And I got them to kind of corroborate that these were the leadership characteristics that are important for helping you in the business side that are taught and honed uh, in the military. So my, you know, my response to, well, yes, the military helped me win the show. It helps me with everything, right? You show up on time, you do what you say you're going to do, you know, you collaborate with people, you problem solve, you do heuristic backwards planning, you do, there's a whole bunch of dynamics that are involved with that. And that seemed to be begging for an answer to that question in a format where I could just say, oh, here's my book. It also pragmatically worked as a platform for my speaking engagements, right? So um, it was pretty, it was, it, w it was fun to write. We've invested in a company that's attacking that very, very archaic industry <laughs> in an additional way uh, coming up. But um, I, I think that the, the answer to the question is, yeah, the military background helps everybody. And a lot of the things that I say to especially entrepreneurs who have military backgrounds or people coming out of the military who are wanting to be entrepreneurs, that even though they might not specifically understand the language of business yet, the skills that they've developed at home far outpace what their contemporaries do that haven't been in those roles. I think that sometimes there's this perception that people who are in the military, either as a result of selection bias and just making the choice to go enter the military or as a result of the training, might struggle to be an entrepreneur because they lack the flexibility and, and open thinking to problem solve, right? Like, so I think there's, and maybe this is a misconception, but some folks in our world think, okay, if someone has military experience, they, they can do any job where there's very clear policies and procedures. If there's a manual they can read, they're going to nail this job, right. but they might struggle in an ambiguous environment, which is entrepreneurship 101. Yeah. Has that been your experience? And, and maybe that's off base, but, but how do you think about that? Yeah. And that I think was in all of the interviews that I did afterward was part of the feedback that the United States military is absolutely focused on the ability for an individual to problem solve. So I'm told to take a hill 
I have to figure out how to take the hill. I'm told to take a bridge. I'm told to, and it, it, each individual commander, and that's why we're so hard to fight, because there isn't a manual that describes all of the complex tasks. Of course, there's a manual for how to get everybody certified on a firing range. Of course, there's a manual for how to break down your M16. Those all are all manuals. Now, the you know the entrepreneur's life is fraught with uncertainty, and as Craig, my partner in Moonshots, um, who's also a West Point uh, graduate, he stayed 17 years in the military afterward, helped stand up Cyber Command in the Army, um, and is now based in Austin, co-located with Army Futures Command. You know, he and I looked at the 74 companies that we've invested in over time and tried to figure out, you know, what one factor could we control for that had the most, at the time of investment, that would have the most impact on having it end up on the correct side of performance, right? Having it be a good outcome versus a bad outcome. And the only one we could come up with was leadership. And to be able to evaluate somebody's capability as a leader was super important on the front end of making the decision to invest dollars in development. Our you know, performance record's exceptional in terms of IRR and performance, and about 70% of our AUM total as individual angels um, while we were doing syndicates and then through the funds, about 70% of that, all that money has gone into teams that have military veteran co-founders. So we're super optimistic from the standpoint of, yeah, it's a, phenom- it's a phenomenal set of leadership. The problem-solving skills exist. And then the other tools that enable you, once you even figure out the problem, get there and solve for it and make it happen, that's where they really shine, right? So, and, and we get a lot of kind of anecdotal head shaking from anybody. It's like, oh, would you want you know, a former Navy SEAL team operator to be your head of ops? Or do you want, and you don't even have to, you can't find anybody else to think of, you know, assuming all of their experience is kind of the same. You're like, yeah, I kind of want that to happen. So tell me a little bit more about your decision is kind of 2006 timeframe to go to the other side of the table and become an investor, right? You had been an advisor, you've won The Apprentice, you've written this book, you're doing speaking engagements, and you told me you're kind of in this whiteboard environment where you're like, oh, these are all the different opportunities I could do, but I love working with entrepreneurs. How did you then take that and say, all right, I'm going to become an investor? So my, um, my mentor on the investing side is a gentleman who's passed away, but his name is Louis Villalobos. And he's based out of, he was based out of Orange County, and he founded the Tech Coast Angels, which is the largest and most prolific kind of angel group that exists in the U.S. He was also a founding board member of the Angel Capital Association, and he's helped and mentored Washington, D.C. Angels and New York Angels to get their chapters started and help them do stuff. He was just a full-on mensch. He did some significant sets of Monte Carlo simulations on the asset class, which has the highest return, which is early-stage technology investing. And... All of his simulations showed that in order to have enough diversification to take advantage of the asset class, you had to get to 20 to 25 investments. And I looked at that, and I had just gone through, after I left Deloitte, I went to a company called E-Teams, which was an amateur sports portal for moms, coaches, parents, everybody for, you know, basically a wizard, if you remember what that was, something to help you build a website for schedule, standing, roster, who's cooking mom next week, directions to the game. And it had some league tools and some team tools and everything else so that you could put pictures of little Johnny up sliding into second base and everything could go up because all of the webmasters were also the volunteer coaches, which were also the parents that had no time to do anything. So we built this that got to about 3 million teams using the system, which was staggering because it's you know 10 to 60 kids on the team and had a lot of reach. But, you know, Lewis was the Tech Coast Angel that invested in that company. So I got to know him and I was on the board with him. And we went through, this was up to the first bubble bursting in 1999. And we basically sold the company to Active Networks, which I think lots of people on this that are listening to this have heard if they've ever registered or signed up for a marathon or triathlon. But Lewis, um, you know, walked me through these Monte Carlo simulations and showed this to me. And I was like, well, I just spent three years as an operator and I got to a successful, again, air quotations, exit, where we got basically money back, but I've got equity in this other company now that who knows when that's going to get liquid. And I need to have 20 of these. Now, I could have fewer if the bigger ones that I own a piece of because I helped start or were part of the team are successful. But how do I get to 20 to 25 of these? I need to start also investing. I need to also start advising, right? And I knew biz dev and finance. So that's what I could add as as a talent to some other entrepreneurs that I thought were interesting. And I wrote my first check 
in 2004 for I think I got him to lower the minimum to like 10 grand. I scraped together money to make my first check into a company called Zag, which changed its name and became TrueCar. So Scott Painter um, let me invest in that company, and that ended up going public and being worth a few billion dollars. Not to me, the, the company. <laughs> but yes, huge um, success story. So, so, yeah. so that's where I started doing it to the point where I'm at, I don't, I don't know the exact number as an individual now, but Craig and I together collectively have covered 74, 75 investments to date. And you're primarily doing that through the, the Tech Coast Syndicate? So I like to talk about my investment history in three chapters. One is an angel, and I was pretty prolific in L.A., 10 or 15 years ago, there were a dozen or two dozen of us that would, you know, typically get hit up for, you know, five to $25,000 checks so that there would be a two to 250K raise from a set of angels. In 2014, Craig and I, who had been angels together, he would tell me about deals that he saw. I would tell him about deals that I saw, decided to form a syndicate because AngelList made it legal to act like a broker dealer without a broker dealer license. So as a lead angel, I could collect money from a whole bunch of people that I'd already been doing, right? Raising money, put that money to work. And then I get a carry on that. So I get up to 20% carry. Um, and some people charge fees, but whatever. So we started running syndicates and we deployed, we've deployed about 13 million through the syndicates. So we did, I don't know, 2 million of individual angel investing, 13 million th- uh, through the syndicates. And that's still going periodically. But the problem with the syndicates was I never knew exactly how much money I would be able to raise for the entrepreneur. And if I liked you and wanted to invest in you, I'd be like, hey, and especially if you were a hot deal, I'm like, I want in. I can get you somewhere between 300 and 600,000 sometime in the next 90 days is not very concrete for that entrepreneur. So Craig and I decided to raise a committed fund where we could be concrete about how much we were investing. We could actually lead rounds of financing, which is what we now do, and also happens to coincide nicely with our thesis, right? We want to be able to lead and be on the board and help that entrepreneur grow and, you know, take a board seat and help them do everything from clean up their cap table and create terms that are friendly to the next round of finance and do all the stuff that he and I have done over the 14 companies that we've been operators in. And what are the things that you and Craig look for when you're making angel investments all the way to leading, you know, around through moonshots? So I'd say the aperture is incredibly wide for the angel investing. Now the angel investing is stuff that we cannot do as a fund. Otherwise there'd be a conflict. So we don't, we don't do that. The syndicate we could play in any level of the company stage. So we'd invested $3 million into a Series C, like Charlie, as to as little as like 100 grand into a, a seed round with no product yet. For the fund, we became much more disciplined and tight so that our LPs understood what we were doing and they could think about us in, in a certain part of the asset class so that they could figure out their diversification. And we are what we call late seed. So there's an MVP, you know, a minimum viable product that the entrepreneur's already built. They're in revenue, so they're at approaching or blowing through 50K a month, you know, or uh, MRR, monthly recurring revenue. They hopefully have a product or a service in a sector or category where Craig and I can be helpful, but that's not as important as their leadership characteristics. And then I I think the most important pieces are are twofold. Craig and I have to be super excited about it, both of us. We've got to kind of think about it in the shower when we're getting ready for work. Like, oh, how do we help them out? What are we going to do? And the second piece is, the founding team is coachable. You know, while we have led most of our deals and do take a board seat, we don't want to run the company. We're not a private equity fund. We don't take over the company. And if the entrepreneur does everything we say to do, then, then we're running the company. We don't want that. We want them to hear us. We've bumped our heads. We've fallen in holes. We've run into walls. We've made a lot of mistakes as operators. And we want to make sure that that wisdom's conveyed and heard by the entrepreneur. They still need to make their own decision because we're investing in their leadership. What are the most common mistakes you see early stage founders make? Wow. There are all sorts of mistakes. Being too optimistic about revenue generation, not taking enough capital in a round of financing. Almost every entrepreneur I know would say, I wish I'd taken a little more capital in that last round of financing. Mm, wow. I know some entrepreneurs who took too much capital. So <laughs> it, typically, the t- I took too much capital means my head got too big and I mm. took too high of a valuation. Mm-hmm. So I think the most important thing to think about, and this goes back to the planning, the heuristic planning is you're going to have to be able to support a higher valuation in the, in the amount of money that in the, I don't talk about it in time. I talk about it in the amount of money that you raise mm-hmm. <laughs> because the, it varies oh, yeah. based on how fast you blow through the cash. Yep. But that money has to get you to milestones that allow you to raise at a higher valuation or it's bad for everyone. I mean, the VCs don't want it either. Nobody wants a down round. It's super bad for just about everybody involved. So really having 
a measured, thoughtful plan around how you're going to create the value in being pragmatic, thoughtful, and reasonable, and somewhat pessimistic about the revenue, and being the same way about the cost. There's stuff that's going to come up that you don't know. We're going to have to redo the product twice. Competitors are going to come at me on pricing. You know, incorporating all those things, like it's like plan for the worst case, but be ready for it to be better than that. Is probably the hardest thing to do because by nature, there's this healthy entrepreneurial you know, enthusiasm that exists around it. Um, that's one. Sometimes it's delusion. <laughs> sometimes sometimes <laughs> you it have is. to uh, believe so much that you're going to do what it takes yeah. to make it happen. Yeah, hundred percent. Willing suspension of disbelief. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, a little. Uh, but I interrupted you. What are, what are some of the other mistakes? A little bit of Shakespeare for you. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that the uh, the understanding and the walkthrough of the entire process of how dilution works is critical, so that you know if you start off with four or five founders. Everybody needs to level set on exactly what that's going to mean two years from now when you've been through two rounds of financing and everybody's in single digits of ownership. Because people don't think that way at the beginning. It's like, oh, smaller I know piece of a larger pie. Is, well, maybe. Yeah. Uh huh. It's just a small piece. Sure. So the pie has to be really big for that's that to right. become. And then, you know, fixing that early is always a hard discussion if it just doesn't make sense on how that rolls out. And then the next, the next piece I would say is, I would strongly urge every entrepreneur to become a master at the legal documents. doesn't sound fun. It's not interesting, but it's your life and it's the controls around which you're operating. Don't, I'm not saying don't trust your attorney. Of course, you should trust your attorney, but you should be able to have a very intelligent and coherent conversation about every single term where you have an opinion and a point of view mm -hmm. about what, why and what that should be and ask your attorney lots of questions, hopefully, before you put them on the clock. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of media and entertainment, entrepreneurship, all the areas in which you operate, what would they be? So, in, in uh, I guess, no, no, no certain order, the ability to be an entrepreneur is like never been better. The resources that exist, the, and by resources, I mean access to capital, what it costs to take to get a minimum viable product to market is pretty fantastic. It's what you, it's what you do with it and how you go to market that's becoming more and more important. And the fast follow, which makes fast following so much easier too. So, thinking very, very, very hard about how do you create a defensible, a defensibility or a moat, as people like to say now, around what you're building and how you market into it is, is incredible. The, the emphasis and the focus on marketing is going to become even greater. Even though it seems like it's already really big, I think it's going to become even greater. I think that the audio element of what's happening, I mean, we're on a podcast. I'll embarrassingly say, you know, my, my stepson was over and we were cooking in the kitchen and uh, with my wife and her son and we're t doing stuff. And she asks him to something about a measurement and to set a timer. And he just turned to Alexa and told her to do both of those things. And we both looked at each other like, huh? <laughs> like we hit ourselves in the head. And the amount of audio searches is skyrocketing. We just invested in a company called Backtracks out of Austin that's going to solve for a lot of that, starting off with podcasts, but is doing some really neat stuff. And I think that the, that, that is just going to just explode. And the second piece is, and appropriately, you know, a plug for your podcast title, both on the marketing side, as well as in the con con consumption of information and data side, video is crushing I mean, it is absolutely growing like crazy. Their entire ecosystem is being built on how to create content faster um, because in order to drive the big engines, Facebook, Google, small businesses churn because they can't create enough content fast enough that's consumable for marketplace around, around their, their products, their most important things that exist. Um, so it's super important to understand how to accelerate the development, the production, and the creation of compelling content. And then if you look at Consumption. I think in the last five years, the percentage of uh, digital video has doubled against TV in terms of consumption, and that's pretty staggering when you think about how big how big it is. Like from something like fourteen percent to twenty eight percent of the overall market. That's huge. Very cool. And what does the future hold for Moonshots Capital? So Craig and I look at Moonshots as more of a business than we look at it as a fund. Um, we want to continue to stay aligned with entrepreneurs so we're never going to go to a billion dollar sized fund so we'll stay you know micro range under 100 under 150 so that we can you know we love to see the stories and of course a billion dollar excellent valuation on a company's life-changing and fantastic for everybody but so is and so can be a 150 million dollar exit or 200 million they're absolutely staggering 
create a lot of value, not only for the entrepreneurs and the early and stage investors that are involved, but for the ecosystem where those entrepreneurs live are going to redeploy that capital uh, into building stuff. And we're super hot both on hashtag long LA and Austin is thriving as well. So we're excited to be in both of those marketplaces. So uh, Moonshots is here to stay. We'll continue to focus on extraordinary leadership capability, you know, with a heavy emphasis on military veteran background. Fantastic. So one of the questions I ask everyone who comes on the show, and you're going to have a slightly different take on this, but if you were starting a business in the digital media, media and entertainment space today, what would you do? The reason I ask it is so many entrepreneurs are listening in. The goal is to try and understand what's the white space out there? What are the, the markets that have yet to be tapped? So I have an unfair advantage in that as my wife has built and sold four media agencies, three to Interpublic Group, one to MDC, and this fifth one, Dumont Project, we built together is at 50 head count and crushing it for clients like everybody's, you know, has provided services for Zillow, Hulu, Casper Tile, like on and on and on. And also having operated in VC, I think there's enough capital that exists that an experienced entrepreneur, depending on what they want their outcome to be, can easily build four or five user acquisition funnel capabilities across multiple different types of products and or services and make a whole lot of money without ever raising any outside capital. So truly entrepreneurial, right, is is answering to no one. Yeah. (laughs) Except your spouse or your kids or whatever it is. Customers, there's always someone to answer to. There's there's someone to answer to, but, you know, when you make the decision to take, you know, institutional investment from a venture capital firm, you're fundamentally changing your mindset and your thought process about how you're going to approach the business and you're letting someone else have a seat at the table. And it can be incredibly, it can be incredibly advantageous to have that depending on what type of business you're, you're building. Um, and in other instances, I, you know, probably in half the meetings that we have with entrepreneurs that have done stuff, I'm like in awe of them for what they've accomplished. It looked impossible. And I'm like, don't raise money from a VC. Keep doing this on your own, you know, figure out a way you've done it this far, just raising some money. And I think a lot of people get starry eyed and think that, oh, I want to raise venture capital because that's the external validation or something else. Yeah. yeah, And with my, you know, quizzical look on my face and my arms raised, I'm like, what? You don't need it. What are you doing? Uh No, you're just asking for another layer of governance. And, you know, you just took your eye off the ball for six months to try to raise the money. You may Mm -hmm. not even raise it. Like, just go kill your business. Yep. But some, some companies, it is appropriate to have venture capital for sure. So you just have to understand and figure out whether or not you're one of those. Where can people find out more about you and more about Moonshots? Moonshotscapital.com. Moonshots is plural. And then um, even though I've hit the 30,000 cap on LinkedIn, I still try to read all the messages on the inbounds coming in and and refer them to Jahara, J-A-W-H-A-R-A at moonshotscapital.com is our killer associate here in Los Angeles who does a lot of the front end, you know, triage on inbound deals. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's fantastic to hear your experience uh, in the military to an operator, entrepreneur, working in larger businesses, becoming an investor, everything from angel to raising a fund, starting a business around that. It's phenomenal. So I really appreciate you sharing your perspective. Thank you for the time and thanks to your listeners. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.